Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pact has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Today, our guest is John Battelle. Hey, man, how you doing? We're going to call this episode our Founders Edition of Great Minds. Uh, I don't know anyone else who has founded more companies that have had more impact than John Battelle. Going way back to 1992, he was a co-founding editor of Wired. A few years later, he was the founder, CEO, and chair of Standard Media and the Industry Standard. He went on to found the Web 2.0 Summit, an incredible company, Federated Media, and more recently has founded something that's really exciting called Recount. He's got lots of other stuff in between. We're going to talk about all of it. Enjoy this episode. John, you uh, went to Cal Berkeley and later returned there as a professor as well. Your major was in cultural anthropology, which is not what I would have guessed um, looking at your career path. Let's talk about that and how that particular choice shaped you. Uh, I I would say it it not only shaped my early thinking, it still does. And it informed my choice of, you know, my, my master's degree, uh, which was in journalism. Um, so when I was an undergraduate, uh, at Berkeley, um, I was considering, um, you know, sort of any of the number of, you know, wayward liberal arts, whether it was English or philosophy, but there was something about anthropology. I took an introductory course. And I just happened to have a professor who was really, uh, you know, incredible. And he, he taught me this idea that's always stayed with me. Uh, first of all, you know, you learn what an artifact is, right? You know, like um, it's, a, it's a, you know, a tool made by culture. And um, so I remember one of the first papers I wrote was about what I thought was the most revolutionary tool ever to be made by a culture, which was the computer. Uh, and specifically the Macintosh computer, which had come out that year when I was in school, um, 1984. All of the images you are about to see on the large screen will be generated by what's in that bag. Hello, I am Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. And as I am too public speaking, I'd like to... Um, And I, I just caught a bug about the importance of this tool and what it reflected about who we were as a culture and where we might go. Uh, and, and, you know, it struck me in the pantheon of, you know, the wheel and, you know, fire speech and the Mac, right. I, I was all in, you know, joints after midnight kind of stuff. Uh, uh and, uh, um, coming out of, uh, out of college, I, I was sort of struck with an immediate career choice, uh, you know, cause I had to pay back some loans and, you know, um, it was, I could 
continue studying anthropology because I was being encouraged by the department to, to take a doctorate, which was like a six to eight year process, which included the one thing I cared about, which was the ethnography, which is where you go in the field and, and, and really learn about a particular culture and you write it up. And I enjoyed writing. But it struck me as quite possibly the slowest form of something else I was really interested in, which was journalism. Journalism struck me as kind of like daily anthropology. Um, and so I decided to go into journalism and, of course, not just journalism, but journalism about technology. Um, and so I made that decision in, in the mid to late 80s. Um, and, and my first job was covering the Macintosh, uh, covering Apple. Um, and, you know, that was a good company to attach your career to back in the late 80s. Apple co-founder Stephen Jobs has a favorite story about Apple's impact on the country. He told it this year at the annual shareholders meeting. I received a letter from a six and a half year old boy a few months ago, which to me completely sums up what we've accomplished in the last few years. And it reads, Dear Mr. Jobs, I was doing a crossword puzzle and a clue was as American as Apple blank. I thought the answer was computer, but my mom said it was pie many of the people involved in that culture, and it really was a culture, um, went on to make some of the most important companies in the tech business. You know, people who either worked at Apple or covered Apple, you know, just an incredible assortment of characters and diverse minds. And, you know, people like Jaron Lanier or John Markoff, you know, uh, people who ended up being my partners at Wired um, were, were just, you know, deep in that space uh, in, the, in the mid to late 80s. Um, and so anthropology led me to tech, tech led me to tech journalism, and the rest is, I guess, a three-year career. John, there are two places in the country, uh, California, I would put first, in Northern California and San Francisco area in particular, and then New York as well, yeah. that have given birth to an incredible number of entrepreneurs yeah. whose impact has really reshaped the world in so many ways. What was it or is it about those two parts of the country that really lend itself to that kind of high-impact entrepreneurship? Well, I think there's, there are kind of two places in the United States where the, 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 the pioneer dream, you know, uh, hasn't entirely been snuffed out. And I think the last four years have been rough on that dream. But, um, you know, we're talking about well before that. California is a place you can go to pursue a dream and not be laughed out of the room. Um, you know, if, uh, particularly if you grew up in sort of a more Midwest or East Coast mentality where, you know, uh, a more conservative structural approach is usually wins the day. Um, you know, work within this system and you will succeed, right? Whereas California has always celebrated a crazy idea. Why the hell? Let's just try it. And, and I, I found that to be true certainly in the Mac Apple culture in the early days. And then absolutely in the early internet culture, um, it was like, well, why not? Let's try this. And my God, this could work and we might change the world, you know, in an important and positive way. If everybody had a computer and it was connected to everybody else and anyone could have a voice and, you know, all of those optimistic, somewhat blinkered, um, you know, externality free, you know, philosophies, uh, you know, really took root in the Bay Area. 
um, and I think found a, a, a sort of willing, willing, you know, uh, you know, compatriot in in the entertainment business in L.A., uh, where a similar sort of, you know, follow your dream, you can become a movie star, you know, kind of approach in L.A. Um, is very similar to follow your dream. You can be an entrepreneur. You too can be Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and I think those those both those dreams have crashed into some serious realities, you know, of, of impact on society over the past decade. Um, and rightly so. Uh, but the other place I think where that still exists is New York City. Um, New York, uh, I heard a, a, an interesting interview, I think it was with, with you, with uh, Fiona Carter, uh, uh, now at Goldman, but previously at AT&T, where she said, you know, New York's the place where you go when you don't feel comfortable where you are. Um, and that's actually what I did. Um, I had gotten um, too comfortable in in the Bay Area to the point where I was uncomfortable because I felt like the conversation had stalled and, and it had sort of turned inward and on turned into itself, you know, and, and, and we were breathing our own oxygen, smoking our own shit, so to speak. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, where could we go that the conversation is lateral and challenging? And that's definitely New York City. Um, you meet so many different characters and most people are not in tech. Most people are not trying to start a company. Um, and so I found that to be incredibly valuable these past two years. John, the industry standard, which you founded uh, after you left Wired, really set the standard for coverage of our industry in the modern era. Uh, it was way ahead of its time, uh, had a spectacular rise and then uh, a crash. But Let's reflect on that and talk about, you know, the excitement of that time period and what was going on and how you built the industry standard. Okay. And then our next question. And John, looking back at that time, you really were almost a soothsayer in terms of what the industry standard covered, how it covered it, and really... uh, it was almost a, a glimpse into the future in many ways. Looking back, what were some of the big stories and headlines that you remember from that time period? Yeah, in, a, in an absolutely seminal moment for, for me and my career for any number of reasons. But uh, it was the first time that I was a CEO. Um, I was a co-founder of Wired and I ran uh, the editorial there and uh, ended up also running the business development, which is an odd, you know, uh, sort of, you know, combination. Um, But uh, I I got this idea um, for for the industry standard while at Wired. Um, You know, Wired was a slow twitch environment. We we did, you know, one really high quality product every month. Um, And then we had started Hotwired, which was a fast twitch environment. And we made, you know, made the product every day over and over and over again. It struck me with the rise of the internet that there was a really important story. And I've always been interested in the narrative of how technology intersects with society um, and the changes that that each, you know, sort of um, brings to the other. Um, And it struck me that in the mid to late 90s, the most evident place where that story was, you know, you know, running into each other, where tech and society were colliding, was in business. Um, and 
uh, you know, at Wired, we thought business was sort of dull but important. Um, you know, every so often we would do a business story. Often I would write it or I certainly would, you know, assign it and edit it. Um, uh, but we, we didn't have like any focused business coverage, uh, either online or in print. Um, but I thought business was fascinating because I, I saw it as sort of the frontier of how we were going to discover how we were going to use these new tools in culture by creating new services on the Internet that were businesses or old businesses figuring out how to do their business on the Internet. That would change culture dramatically and how we engaged with each other. Marshall McLuhan said that one day we would all live in a global village, an electronic community interconnected by communications networks that would shrink the earth. Well, the global village has arrived and its main street is called the Internet. I thought that story was fascinating. I pitched a weekly magazine covering that story to my colleagues at Wired and they're like, yeah, it sounds great, but it's, it's not really on brand, you know? Um, and so I, I, I quite coincidentally was being recruited by um, Pat McGovern, who, you know, the sort of a lion of tech publishing, uh, who had a company, IDG, which was the most important publishing company in tech at the time. And he wanted me to do a weekly magazine on the Internet. Now, his idea was like a trade magazine, you know, the, you know, Internet world, right? You know, just cover all the nuts and bolts and the products and the services and all that. My idea was The Economist. <laughs> you know, I wanted to do like really high quality journalism covering the business story. You know, sure, we might cover products here and there, but that's not the point. The point is this, the journalism about this change happening in society. And Pat and I came to an uneasy, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, agreement that I, we kind of try to do both. We take a trade magazine sort of look and feel, but I, I took the variety approach as opposed to the, you know, PC week approach. Um, but he let me do the journalism I wanted to do. And it, it, it was a, an incredibly uh, historic publication in that we timed it such that the first year sucked. Let's just be honest. The first year, no one wanted to buy ads. You know, the readers liked it, but, you know, not enough for me to be able to sort of prove that it was a success. Um, but that, that was the first year was 97 and 98. Then we just caught fire. And by the time we got to 99, we were doing, you know, thousands of ad pages a month. And we set like the land speed record for number of ad pages in a publication in 2000. Still hasn't been eclipsed, never will, because print, as we all know, is a, is a medium that's not exactly uh, growing anymore. Um, and, and along the way, I think we, we kind of helped you know, set the standard, I, I named that intentionally, for how to cover this story, you know, critically, uh, but with entertainment, you know, value, like, you know, we, we, we a wink and a nod, uh, a little bit of insiderism, but approachable. Um, we had a newsroom with 120 journalists, like we were really serious, we expanded to 15 countries around the world. Um, we raised, uh, a, you know, a a ridiculous amount of capital um, and we prepared to go public uh, and then we became a spectacular dot-com crash poster child um, and 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 the process of, of growing to hundreds of employees hundreds of millions in revenue 20 million in profit and then the next year being bankrupt that that'll give you some thick skin as a first-time CEO 
right? Uh, and, and you learn a lot about who your friends and partners really are and who they're not and how to manage a board or how to screw up managing a board. I did both, I think, well and poorly. Um, you know, and how to take it when you're the front page, you know, uh, A1 story in the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, and when you're the person that sort of, you know, gleefully held up as an example of dot-com excess. Um, and, and so, you know, going through all of that was pretty seminal to my career. So the industry standard goes away. You get a life raft from your old university and not only teach in that time, but while you're doing that, author a highly acclaimed book and start writing your next chapters. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, it kind of goes back to that story I told you about me deciding between being a working journalist and, and going into a PhD program. If you go into a PhD program, your job's going to be professor. That's the job you get at the end. It's rare that anyone, although, you know, it turned out that a lot of PhDs in anthropology became in-house anthropologists at large companies. Um, that really wasn't a career path back in the 80s. Uh, so I always imagined that might be something I did, but it was after the dot-com crash when I was really spinning. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I, I had lost faith a little bit with my own narrative because everyone was saying the internet was over, you know, and I had pretty much convinced myself that the internet was everything. So in 2001, that, that was a hard year. Um, and uh, I got some outreach from uh, the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism, who is a friend, Orville Schell, um, not anymore the Dean there, but he was at the time. And he said, you know, uh, we'd love to have you come teach magazine publishing and online publishing. And we are just starting online publishing. We, we don't know anything about it. Maybe you can, you know, help some students figure out this whole blogging thing, you know, and this whole uh, web website thing, uh, as well as teach some sort of more traditional magazine publishing, because I had both those experiences. Um, and, and so I did, and I, I was there for four or five years uh, while I was building a number of other things. I was writing a book on Google, and I also started Federated Media during that time, as well as the Web 2.0 conference. So it was an incredibly productive stretch of time to have an academic home to hang my hat while at the same time developing a lot of other things. And coming to New York, it turned out the same thing uh, happened again. I, I came here and, and, and ran into a friend who taught at Columbia. Uh, and within three months, I, I, I was a professor uh, at Columbia, uh, not in the journalism school, although I teach some journalism students, but in the School of Public Policy, SIPA, School of International Public Affairs, um, which was really interested in the impact of technology and the industries of technology on overall public policy, which obviously is an incredibly large and important field now. So it's, you know, it's great to be back at Columbia, uh, rather back at teaching. And it's great to be at Columbia, which I would say, despite the fact that Columbia is a wealthy private school and Berkeley is a, you know, hat in hand public school, they're very similar in other ways, very large research institutions, diverse set of student uh, body um, and, and a commitment to kind of open inquiry. So John, sort of consistent with what we were talking about earlier in terms of seeing the future, you were a real uh, pioneer, let's use that word, an old word, in understanding what was happening. You were in social media, before anybody knew 
it was social media, coining the term way back when, conversational media, and created two companies that were really seminal during that time period, Federated and then Web 2.0. Let's talk about both of those. Yeah, for, you know, I seems like my work tends to run in five-year cycles. Um, uh, Federated launched in 05 and kind of hit its peak in 2010. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll just briefly talk about that first. Um, with Federated, what I noticed was I had started a blog while I was writing a book on Google. And that blog, uh, uh, at its peak in, in uh, kind of 2004, uh, had about 300,000 regular visitors a month. Uh, when I ran the industry standard, which had been valued at hundreds of millions of dollars, um, it peaked in circulation at 250,000. Uh, and so I was like, okay, wait a minute. With one guy and one blog, yeah, sure, maybe I'm, you know, I've, I've seen a few things and my writing is, 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 is cogent enough for people to want to, you know, engage with. But something deeply important is happening in the economics of media. And my analysis was that what was happening is people were connecting directly to uh, the voices, like through the medium. This interactivity that I had been on about since Wired um, was happening. It was breaking out. And the underlying enabler of that was the company that I was writing about, Google. Um, Most of my traffic was coming from people finding me through Google search. Um, and so I kind of put all that together and thought, okay, there is a new form of media. I'm going to call it conversational media. Uh, it, it, the, the moniker that stuck was social media, um, but I called it conversational because I use academic terms and, you know, I, I, I'm not as good a marketer uh, as, as others. Um, and that form of media fundamentally changes the relationship between the creator, which also you could call it the media company or the publisher, the marketer and the audience, those three legs of the stool in media, right? Um, and and if you could harness that, you might be able to create a new kind of media company that wasn't just one big massive company like AOL at the time or Yahoo, but rather was a federation of thousands of voices. Um, and so I used to call it a school of fish that looked like a whale, right? Um, and in fact, at Federated, we did crack the Com- ComScore top 20 and became like one of the biggest audiences uh, on the Internet. Um, and we had, you know, a lot of the most sort of well-known brands that came out of that that period uh, as, as, as partners that and our job was to be a platform for them for making money, dealing with all the operational logistics of publishing um, you know, and, and, and lots of various other technological things. And we did their sales for them. Right. Um, and that was, you know, dig and Reddit and business insider and Mashable and TechCrunch And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. We, we found the talent and we federated the talent. And then we started building very unique marketing products for the, uh, for the marketer. We called it conversational marketing suite. What they really were was native advertising and branded content, which became massive $10 billion industries now. But back then, I spent all of my time, as I do now with my current startup, convincing marketers that the water is safe and that this is a good idea and they should just at least break up a tiny bit of budget to try something new. 
this don't be afraid of this new social media thing you know uh, the water's fine you just have to know how to be conversational how to how to if you get a bad comment on one of your ads it's okay right and i i proselytize that for for years uh and 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 i think it you know, now, of course, every brand has hundreds of people in their social media departments and they have branded content agencies and they're, you know, they're off being engaged with their audiences at scale. Um, but back then it was, you know, it was pick and shovel work. <laughs> uh, and then on Web2, you know, I've always I've just loved it. And particularly given that I, I was CEO uh, both at the Standard and then at Federated, you know, you can't be a working journalist and be a CEO. I think that's very hard to do. Um, and so uh, I missed the ability to shape the narrative as a journalist. And, and so when Tim O'Reilly and I met one, one, one year, 2003, and agreed that there was a really interesting resurgence of the Internet that was just starting to show green shoots everywhere after the dot-com crash, and it had this platform-like sort of sensibility that the Internet itself was a platform people could actually build things on, um, and that the, the broadband had happened, that, that the technologies, HTML and, uh, you know, Java and all these other, pro, you know, had happened, that maybe there was a second coming of the web. And so we started this Web 2.0 conference together. And, and I got a chance to shape a program on an annual basis that was really like an agenda setter for the industry. And it was just super fun and a big honor. And, and I learned how to be an interlocutor, how to be on stage and interview people and and, and, you know, and tied together a program over three days and all of that. Um, and that, that conference had a remarkable decade-long run that I'm quite proud of. You're in so many businesses that this is probably the biggest challenge I've ever had, which is to figure out which questions to ask you first. So instead of trying to dive into one of them, I'm going to ask you to be the proxy for the whole global economy and, and tell us, are we going to be okay <laughs> uh, yes. So, John, we're in a strange time jumping ahead to the present, and I know you love the experiential space and are always ready for what's next also. But let's talk about, you know, with uh, you know, clear eyes where we are right now, your take, and where do you think we're going? I do, but I think it's going to be slow, um, and particularly, unfortunately, in the United States. I don't think that this administration truly understands the damage it's doing uh, to us, to, to you, to me, to probably almost everybody who, who might be listening to this. It's long term. Um, while other countries are now starting to allow gatherings of 250 to 500 people, um, I, I don't see that happening till sometime later next year um, in this country. And, and it might be in a couple of states, but, you know, people can't fly in from from places that are, you know, still hotspots. So it's it's really unnerving what's happened in experiential. Um, at the same time, it's exciting what's happening in virtual um, because virtual was always kind of a dead space, boring webinars, you know, who really wants to do that? But now you have a whole generation, and I mean that more temporal, like, time-based, like everybody, no matter the age. My daughter's downstairs right now taking a class virtually uh, at Columbia. Um, you know, everyone knows how to do what we're doing right now. And it's a new set of consumer behaviors and the tools are terrible. Uh, and, and the fact is they're going to get really good really fast. 
Now, it's not going to be the same as being in the room because the ability to run into people, get excited about something with someone you've never met, strike a new partnership up, that happens so much easier and better in the flesh. But there are so many things you can do in this platform that I'm excited about. And I've been exploring in a number of, you know, both at the recount and in, in, in other work that I do, um, that I think that there's, you know, that will be lasting. There will be the ability to quickly gather large groups and small intimate groups using platforms like the one we're on uh, to do good, you know, to do good business, to do good in an industry, to do, you know, to push uh, the boundaries of how people connect and learn. Um, so I'm excited about that, uh, but it's early. So, you know, if you had a $20 million, you know, P&L on experiential and, you know, it's gone, you're not going to build a $20 million P&L on virtual in a year. You might in a few, but not in a year. And so, you know, crossing, bridging that gap is very similar to what a lot of traditional publishers had to do when the internet wiped them out. Um, and, and they had to figure out, you know, you remembered, you know, uh, you know, you know, physical dollars to digital dimes or whatever that, that phrase was, you know, like it's just not, it's not the same. Um, but it will be, this will be a massive industry, I think. Um, but it will be additional to experiential, which I think will come roaring back, but not in the next year. Okay, John. So let's talk about, uh, your latest venture. Uh, recount. Really exciting. Let's get into it. Absolutely. So uh, the recount is a new approach um, to both creating a media company, the business model of that media company, the format of the products that we make, uh, and the approach that we take to partnerships with marketers. Um, and, you know, it's, I think, the culmination of really three decades of work, both my work uh, making media companies, making media products, and John Heilman, my partner's work in, 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 in journalism and in being an observer, a very keen observer of, of how things are changing in both the narrative, the, the you know, national affairs, political narrative, as well as the product. Um, he and I have made products before together. He was the first ever uh, political blogger uh, I hired him to cover the 1996 election for Wire. And he wrote a daily site called Netizen that, you know, was a blog post every day. Uh, the word didn't exist, but that's what it was. And we invented that together. And, and so we, we, we were trying to solve a very fundamental problem with the recount, which is there is no place to go to understand quickly in a, in a way that doesn't waste your time what the hell's going on right now? Um, using video, which is the highest impact, potentially highest nutrition medium in the world. But video has been a medium that has essentially been wasted. The, the, the business models that, that proffer video are either online, you know, divisive, uh, uh, highly engaging, and kind of dumb. But the goal is just to keep you watching so that you see more ads. Um, or it's cable news, where there's about two and a half minutes of actual information in an hour. And the goal is to just sort of have it on as wallpaper so that you just get as many ad breaks as possible. Both of those business models are about wasting your time. And if there's one thing I know, 
If you can build a company that saves people time, that's a good company. And so we decided, can we reinvent the format of how news is delivered, um, leveraging the assumptions that all of the massive trends that have occurred in the past 10 years have actually occurred. They're over. They're now assumptive. It's not like something new. Everybody watches video on their phone. Everybody has a phone. Everybody's on social media. Those are just truths. You can't avoid those truths. So what kind of a company would you build? Not the one that's trying to adapt to those trends, but one that's built natively inside of them, right? And that's what John and I decided we wanted to try to do. And then uh, uh, we had early conversations with a friend of ours, Fred Wilson, who's a well-known VC in, the, in, in New York, uh, and he got very excited about it. And so he became the founding investor, um, and we spent a year learning how to make a new format of remixing all of the media that already exists in the world into a very short form, very concise, highly informative highly journalistic product that also was entertaining. We begin this week with sadly familiar news. The number of coronavirus cases across the country is closing in on the 5 million mark and more than 160,000 Americans have died. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. Donald Trump simply refused to acknowledge any failures in his administration's response. This thing's going away. It will go away like things go away. Not true. A research model regularly used by the White House projects nearly 300,000 deaths in America by December 1st. Meanwhile, lawmakers and White House officials are still negotiating a new coronavirus stimulus package. Just last week, the extra $600 a week in federal unemployment benefits expired. Republicans really want to see that trimmed down to about $200. So they have moved. Doubling their offer to $400 per week. Though Democrats you know, that, that also, you know, had a voice and a point of view. I would say there's a direct line, not intentional, because I didn't do the design and the, and the graphics, you know, of the editorial, from the industry standard and wired to this product. It's bright. It's fast. It's, you know, it doesn't talk down. It, 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 it has a wink and a nod. You know, it says, you know, we know there's, you know, there's an eye roll in this somewhere, right? These powerful people doing crazy things, right? Um, just like that was the wink and the nod we had about all those inter internet entrepreneurs becoming billionaires, right? Or, or all those crazy enthusiasts who thought that the internet was going to transform, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, cosmology um, at Wired. But also a belief that this could help, right? Like if we had a, you know, if, if an audience could in two and a half minutes get really smart on what was happening in, you know, uh, in economic reopenings around the country and do it in a way where they could feel like dinner party smart by the end of it, right? That would be a service. So we, we set out to figure that format out, to build a newsroom that understood how to make that product. And then how do you migrate that product from like the traditional obvious thing that all publishers do, which is an owned and operated app or an owned and operated website. How do you natively express that kind of journalism in a platform like Twitter. And that's what we announced the partnership uh, six weeks ago. Uh, and it has been, I, I mean, I, I can't give you the exact numbers. I, I could, but I'm not allowed to. We are killing it. It is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. The, the engagement numbers 
the you know the 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 overall audience we're drawing uh, the uh, the the amount of video views that people are bringing the completion rate of those views uh, the performance of the marketers that are working with us it's all of it is mind-boggling I'm so excited about it and I couldn't have talked with this about this with you really even several weeks ago because I didn't have the numbers but now I have them and it's working uh, and and I'm there are moments in a career when you realize you've got a tiger by the tail and all you want to do is hold on. Uh, that happened when we got the first returns in from the newsstand at Wired for the first issue. You know, we shipped that issue and it took eight weeks to know that we had a hit. You know, we just didn't know how people felt. Um, and, and, you know, that happened a year and a half into the industry standard when all of a sudden, you know, our circulation expanded to 2x and all the advertisers started calling us as opposed to us calling them, right? And it's happening right now with the recount. Like it, it is absolutely, it's very, you know, humbling and gratifying to have a product that's being embraced as, as, as directly and as quickly as, as, as what we're doing on Twitter is being embraced. It's super cool. So, John, with Recount, there's a little bit of reimagination, too, in terms of the dynamics uh, looking at, you know, key intersection points. Can we dig into that a little bit? Right. And the other part that's really important, particularly for this audience, is the way the marketing relationship works. And I think it's a model, and I wrote a very long piece about this, which if readers want, you know, some bedtime reading to help them go to sleep, they can, they can go to my blog and check it out. But it really comes down to reimagining the core relationships between those three legs of the stool that we talked about earlier, you know, the media company, the audience and the marketer. Like the marketer has always been drawn to the media company's product as the vessel of context for putting a marketing message inside. Right. Like in the pages of Wired, I contextually want to be seen as understanding the enthusiasm and optimism of a Wired reader. So if I'm inside that vessel. I, my ad, if it's appropriate, if it's contextually appropriate, like I'm Sony and I've got a new monitor I want you to buy, then I'm going to look like the monitor for people who are contextually into Wired, right? That context is how brands are built and have been built for decades using media. We lost that context when the platforms rose, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and, and now Amazon. We lost it because all of a sudden marketers could bypass that vessel of context and go directly to buying audience on those platforms. And it was so efficient and it was so seductive that they forgot about how important it is for brands to be built in the context of a community of media. And what the Twitter deal allows us to do is bring that context back. The marketer can use Twitter to build their own audience, not our audience. They're not buying the organic audience of the recount. They can if they want, but they don't have to. They can construct their own audience and then use our content as the lure to bring audiences through their marketing message and into our content. And our video view rates are so high when we do that together. It's, it's reconnecting the context of media to the context of audience and the marketer is the one responsible for doing it that gives a new kind of power and responsibility to the marketer that I believe they have ceded to the platforms these past 10 years. 
A lot of people just put their money into the Facebook machine. They don't even know how the algorithms work. They just know that it spits out the end result KPI that tells them they're succeeding, right? They've lost that power of the media buy, the power of knowing what you want to buy in context. And with the Twitter partnership we have, which we call real-time recount, you can reassemble it and use all of the reach of the platform, all of the ad tech, the analysis, the first and third party data, the, you know, the, the, the targeting and precision, all of it, the scale. But at the same time, you get the context. And I, I'm, I, I think this is not only a model, obviously, for us, uh, and it's working very well for us. It's a model for a lot of other publishers, and it's a model for a lot of other platforms. Um, I think that this would work very well on YouTube. Uh, I think it could help solve a lot of problems on Facebook because Facebook to me is the most contextless place you could possibly market. Um, and I think it could be a, a model for, for any set of new, you know, new platforms that are emerging like Snap or TikTok. So, John, earlier we talked about you as a soothsayer. And I've also always thought of you as a real truth teller. We're now in an incredibly complex era the definition of news uh, is now subjective. Let's talk about what you're doing there and your thoughts on this incredibly complex arena. This is really core to the, to, to, to the product that we're making. When your true north is calling bullshit, you find lots of it on every side of a particular story. Um, and, you know, uh, we've been criticized, uh, and I think, you know, uh, understandably, if not uh, correctly, as being part of the liberal media. Um, and, you know, first of all, this administration has moved the goalposts on what high quality journalism is. The practice of high quality journalism in the United States has been deemed a left wing activity. Um, uh, and even so far as being treasonous and enemy of the people. That is uh, a terrible state of affairs, which I very much hope changes in November. Uh, that said, when your job, as it is now for us, uh, is to cover the most important and biggest stories of the day nationally, that's what we do. Um, and the president is our current president and the Senate is our current Senate. You are going to call BS on more Republicans than you do on more Democrats because the Republicans are driving the news cycle. Um, but what we've really enjoyed seeing is when we call BS on Democrats, we're loved by the conservatives. They follow us, they share us, they, they, they rip our videos and put them on Fox news. <laughs> um, and then when we do the same to Trump or, you know, uh, his cabinet or other, other political figures, the same thing happens on MSNBC. Um, they, they love it and they put it on, Right. So we're equal opportunity bullshit callers. And that's the way we thread the needle. You know, if there is a change in, um, in administrations next year, um, I'm quite sure that all of a sudden we'll be seen as in the pocket of right-wing media. Um, uh, our job is to call bullshit. It's not to be partisan. Um, and and it's, it's, it's really John Heilman who should get credit and Slade Somer, uh, uh, you know, our editor, should get credit for maintaining a relentless focus on that and not on trying to score points with the left or the right. That's not our job. 
So, John, I'd love to sort of start to wrap up just by getting, you know, a sense from you as to what else is out there that you'd like to get to or get back to. And just sort of, uh, uh, you know, I don't ask this really ever of any guests, but sort of a summary of perspective. I love your insights and your take on things. Help me wrap this thing up. This has been an absolute joy. Uh, I'll tell you what I really, you know, miss and what I think I'll probably get back to if there's a next act after this. Um, it's it's long form writing. Um, and, 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 and to me, long form writing isn't just about the output. You know, it's a book. You know, it's a series of long blog posts or whatever it might be. Um, it's the rigor of the thinking required and the research and reporting required to do a good job at it. So there is a very specific topic that I am absolutely convinced there's like a really important set of writings to be done. And there are many, many great writers already working on this. So and by no means am I like, all I want to do is be additive. I don't want to be definitive. Um, but, but I think the, the moment, the long moment we've been going through uh, of trying to struggle our way into thinking exponentially we, we don't understand how to move past our own biology uh, and think in ways that technology allows us to think. We, we, we're failing at it in governance, so politically. We're failing at it in, in, in uh, socially. So if you think about like the problems of Facebook, uh, particularly uh, one-to-one at scale is not how we evolved. We don't know how to do it. We need to create new social structures and new mores and values to, to understand it. It is a historic and quite probably an existential opportunity slash crisis that we're in the midst of. I want to write about that. Um, and, and, and I think the core at the core are the, the two things that I'm really about right now, which is business and politics. Um, and, and so, you know, if I do do something after this, and this is what I'm doing right now, absolutely. I teach about these issues and ideas at Columbia. That's kind of my little outlet at the moment. Um, uh, but I would love to go, uh, to put more energy into that, you know, at some point later in my career. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.